0: History, uh, Lecture number 84, Rabbi Blywes. Say it again? Well, the Inquisition actually is older than people often think it's been expulsion. So expulsion. Right, it's been a couple hundred years, so we're already holding. Listen, right now we're in the year, we find ourselves in the year 1263. The Inquisition, originating in France, has already been around for quite some time and has shifted already down to Spain, yeah. 83, thank you for the correction, the election number 83. The um, We set then the backdrop of the um, Inquisition going after um, not just Jews, but lapsed Catholics. It's just that lots of Jews were understood to be in that category uh, because they were forcibly converted or, or compelled to convert and thereby. Uh, were often suspected of, of secretly practicing, and correctly suspected of secretly practicing Judaism, mitzvahs, and Torah. Um, you should be aware, though, that even sincere, I mean, not that these are good guys, but even sincere converts to Catholicism and totally embrace Catholicism and renounced Judaism were also sometimes targeted by the Inquisition and tortured and murdered, and they got their confessions. And remember the, illa- the irrational nature, it was somehow only a real confession if they confessed under duress under, by Paul being tortured. So sometimes even from their perspective a good guy who had genuinely converted was hopeless. Right? They, there, was no, there was nothing he could do nothing to, do to get himself out of the um, his problems. Uh, and we said that the the Christian world is in decline and they they're, they're looking to sing an opportunity with the Jews now, King James, the first of Aragon um, <laughs> in Aragon it, with the, uh, the court uh, had been established. The community was under the influence of the Dominicans. And one of the Dominicans was a fellow by the name of Friar Paul, sometimes referred to as Pablo Cristiani, who was himself a former convert uh, from Judaism to their Catholicism um he's one of the bad guys of histories of history we met yesterday nicholas donan certainly another one who fit the same uh same uh pedigree who came who came from the jewish people uh, only to renounce the jewish people and be one of the great anti-semites of history as often we find that to be the case and there's a psychological profile without getting overly uh psychobablish and 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 simplistic but there is something to the idea of turning on the Jewish people, being, being on some level subconsciously threatened by them, and having to uh, show them a le- teach them a lesson. Because you're one of them, you're one of them. Right, in other words, from that perspective, it's not enough to just kind of live and let live, let the Jews alone, but if you've converted as a way of almost um, validating, seeking some kind of external validation of what you've done, you can't permit those Jews to continue practicing their Judaism. It's a similar dynamic what we explained about um, the, the, the <coughs> supersessionism with the, with the Christian world that they expected the Jews to follow. And when they didn't, somehow the ongoing stubborn insistence of, of, of the Jews, that Judaism, that Torah was correct, served as a thorn, more than a thorn in the side as, as, as a source of tremendous insecurity among the Catholics, among the Christians, because, well, then, if they're not buying our bill of goods, maybe they're right and we're wrong. Do you find that like a lot in a lot of places you're saying? I think so. I think it's it's just a basic human uh, quality <laughs> of insecurity, and the and I, I mentioned this too when we when we first started talking about um, Christianity that it's not mutual, meaning that the Christians don't sign on to Judaism. A it doesn't bother us because our mission is not to proselytize, and we understand the the Kabbalah shemaim is a tall order and not something that we expect or we expect from the non-Jews. So the fact that they don't toe the line by us, okay, we understand. Uh, But the fact that we don't follow their uh, leadership and their path, when in fact all of the Yashka and all the original disciples were Jewish, and their expectation was the Jews would would follow, and the fact that we didn't indicates that maybe the original path was correct and that they had deviated, which is certainly what we believe. So now, Friar Paul sets sights on Klael Yisrael and tries to missionize them and is resoundingly a failure, does not succeed. The numbers he produces are, are, are too small for his liking. And so he decides to have yet another one of these debates. Um, this one, this, in this occasion, it's in Barcelona. The, the big debate that we saw earlier yesterday in, in 1240, so exactly 23 years earlier, Uh, that took place in Paris, north of here, was a precedent, and there were these debates that took place, these are simply the prominent ones. Um, He will formally challenge the Jews, and representing the Jews, he challenges the great Ramban himself, whose life story we're in the middle of of reviewing. Um, He challenges Moshe ben Nachman to lead the Jews, represent them, uh, to finally have it out over the issue, the central organizing issue was, had Mashiach appeared or not, and prior Paul was set to prove that Mashiach, everybody agreed that even the Jews believed that the Messiah had come. Uh, whether, the, se- the second issue, whether according to Tanakh, um, he is a uh, divine being or a human being, right? which of course, a major difference between us, and whether the Jews or the christians which one holds the true faith yeah. who are the who are the who will the, will the, and, and he, it's not exactly an arm wrestling match but it more or less you know which of us is right and uh, he calls to the ramban and the ramban bravely refuses to appear and the uh, refusal to appear could mean uh, prison, it could mean much worse, it could mean so death. Not, but he's not interested, is he allowed to that, do that? That's irrelevant. The Ramban so at the time, the at the time is 69 years old. The year is 1263. Um, and and the Ramban doesn't care. He says, he explains to his, to his uh, colleagues, he says, if um, I can't, I, this will be like one of the other debates that are rigged, if I cannot, do Torah justice to Torah, better that they kill me. They're not gonna say in my name something that's a distortion of Torah, as had been done and as will be done uh, to many rabbis. So he simply refuses to to participate. And um, the king does something extraordinary. He promises the Ramban impunity. You can stand up and say your piece as you like it. We will not distort your words. You have freedom of speech. So we hear this idea and we think, okay, freedom of speech, yeah, I know that. I grew up with that. But that's a unique quality that exists in our times. Uh, Back in uh, 13th century Spain, uh, not that there was a unified country of Spain, but back in this part of the world, or really any part of the world, there was no such thing as freedom of speech. Nobody could speak their mind. That's a, that's a byproduct of modern democracies. Um, and so with this promise, the Ramban accepts. And the debate is planned and scheduled and eventually takes place on the secular dates, July 20th uh, through July 24th, during that week. And the Ramban does not hold back. His words are so harsh against the church, so audacious, so bold, That he stuns everybody, including the Jews. Nobody expects that he's he's going to go up there and just say it like it is. Again, in these these days, you generally didn't do that. That was something that people didn't risk. Eli? The person who spoke against the opponent was also a Jew. He spoke against, I missed the key word. He was also a Jew. Uh uh, this is this is this is the story. Exactly. Exactly. Right yeah, he, he is a Jew, no question. Um, you, you can read about this and I guess when we did I, uh, this is a little bit of review for us because we talked about this I think almost all of you were there when we were in uh, the shul that's the traditional place that's identified as being the rabban shul we don't know that it is for sure uh, it's beneath the base uh, the, the Yaakov shul the people incorrectly call the Chorva um, in any case we talked about this and I alerted you to the fact that there's so much more that can be told I'm just giving you highlights um, and then I'm, I'm aware that they've even made movies over this uh, on, on this, which is not surprising to me, it is the whole story is very rich and I guess uh, suggests some kind of cinematic adaptation. The um, essence of Pablo Christiani's argument is as follows He cites, remember, he was a Jew and he knew some Torah, knew some Talmud, and he cites several passages in the Talmud, agarata, that indicate that Mashiach may have lived during the time of the Talmud. Remember that Talmud is an elastic enough work that if you're looking for something, you've got a foregone conclusion. You can often find it. I know, for example, I mean, I, I use this as an illustration of that in modern times. I know of a conservative rabbi who, um, who proves, or tries to prove from it, that um, God loves uh, and approves of homosexual marriages, and so do the rabbis, and it's really the modern fascist Jews, uh, orthodox Jews who reject such things. And uh, you could probably, if you could start with your own ideas and conclusions, you might be able to bend the Talmud to, uh, to, to submit to your will. Yeah. Question, though, the... I'm sorry, Brock yeah. was first, then Daniel. Is he a certified Russian? Like, would he know enough Torah to be considered a great Russian? Oh, that's an interesting question, because we usually hold enough a chorus to yeah. be somebody who knows mm-hmm. enough and then rejects it, probably. Probably. He does, he does seem to know a little bit about it, even though his knowledge is distorted, but yeah, maybe Wait, so. If there's substantial arguments. What's that? How can you be an opic like if you know enough you're saying you have to know enough to be able to disprove it? Right. I mean Lamaï said there's no Navcomina maf- maf- be- for our purposes. This is you're asking you know, Binam Lamako, how he's gonna be judged in Olam but will he be seen as an apicorus, will he be a Tino Shunishba? there's no difference as no, far no, as but we're that concerned. Course, you have to say something that's not true but it, according to him it's true and it can't be disproven then. No, 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 of course is somebody who's knowledgeable like the classic and the quintessential of course we've met before, Alicia Benabuya, who knows what he's talking about and nevertheless goes off and is evil Here, I mean, you can, you can debate this one because his 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 statements about Chazal are so clearly twisted either he twisted intentionally meaning he knew the right he knew the right version and, and deliberately uh, uh, turns it around towards his own conclusions, in which case then he's really evil. Or maybe he never really understood in the first place, and his whole uh, initial knowledge was clouded, in which case maybe he's more in the realm of the chinishpa. Again, it's a, it's a question we can ask. It's, it's, not a, it's not something that really matters to us. Good yeah, Daniel, Daniel was going to say something. When a convert or um, a reform, we call the converts and reforms, do they know... Do they themselves call themselves Reformed or Modern Orthodox or they Who? do they think they are Orthodox? Who? The ones you convert. No, they're reformed. Reform. They're Reform too. Modern Orthodox, the ones that, you know, be rise you know, that's that stuff. No, there's two different... I, I, the world is, you're asking a whole new question that we, uh, as Rosh Hashem, we're going to get into modernity. I keep saying that we're running a little bit behind because we're going to spend a lot of time on all these kinds of questions and hopefully have a little more insight and information to discuss them. Um, what, 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 I'm going to answer your broad question in broad terms. There are, uh, my theory is that every kind of Jew that could be out there is. You know, so there are variations. I mean, there are people who call themselves modern orthodox who are absolutely reformed. There are people who are reformed who are absolutely reformed. I mean, you can't really be reformed and also be somehow a Torah-observant Jew. Um, but uh, there are variations in, in, in all of these categories. Ilan, you had, you had something you wanted to follow up? Yeah. If someone was able to listen to a he carried some central, or had some central arguments against that that couldn't be argued, right? No, he didn't really make so many strong points. It wasn't, for Alicia, in Alicia Benabuya's case, it wasn't so much that he had um, developed an alternate theology instead of his own sect or set of arguments. It was, um, he, he had a, a when he saw Metatron sitting down, he had a certain idea, and, and then he incorrectly presumed that meant that, that um, it was too late for him. And so why bother being religious since the doors are closed? But clearly and evidently he's still held in principle by Torah and Torah Shebechtab and Torah Balpeh as evidence in the fact that he tells Rabbi Meir you've reached the Shabbos. And therefore you better turn back because Shabbos is very important and you don't want to be Machal Shabbos like me. No, meaning, but, meaning he uh, felt, so that's a very different, uh, different personality than Papa Christiani. So mean, someone that could argue without being disproven, how could they be considered obvious because their arguments are equally as valid? You want to say, because I haven't addressed this yet, I realize, you want to say that if somebody has valid proofs yeah. that are against Torah? Yeah. Then they can't really be considered well, we would say such proofs, if they're against Torah, are invalid, I guess, from a Torah perspective. There are no valid proofs. Meaning, meaning, you have to run with the premise that Torah is emes, that's what I run with, and therefore, if it's somehow going to undermine that, by definition, it's invalid. Well, but you wouldn't be able to disagree it. How could it just be entirely invalid? Well, it depends on what you mean, I guess. I guess really what we're, what we're dancing around, I'd rather not spend too much time on this, yeah. but it sounds like maybe the, the issue at hand is what's considered a proof and can you disprove or prove something, my whole premise is it's only provable through chazal, meaning it's provable through a pasuk or a Svara or something that's consistent with chazal. So by definition, if that's what proof means, it's not, talking, I'm not talking about scientific empirical proofs. If that's what proof means, then, well, then, I, of course, can never prove against tyrant. Mimela but he, he also wasn't prostatizing right who was uh, Alicia. he didn't proselytize. he was exactly exactly so he's not in the same ballpark right. at all as as, as <coughs> the likes of Pablo because or Nicholas Donan or any of these any of these um, some more original figures that emerged in the middle ages and there'll be others too uh, there'll be some that are going to if you haven't anybody know who uh, uh, the name Joshua Lorkey Shlomo Halevi okay some of their stories if you're not familiar with them should shock you and scandalize you as as, as we're about to see, and it's going to come around the corner soon. The Pablo Christiani then argues that through several that Mashiach lived during the times of the Talmud, and he concludes that Mashiach, therefore, short of any other candidate, must have been Yashka. And it's a preposterous argument, one that we would hardly even look at had it not been presented in the central platform and, and, uh, and a response was necessary. Now, a book written later by the Ramban, the Sefer of Ikuach, um, says that Paul claims as follows. The verse in Yeshia, chapter 53, which is one of the chapters that they go through, and I imagine when Rev Lazarus right, gave his shear, certainly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> chapter 53 is, is the one that they, that they clumped. So, Friar Paul, of course, quotes this chapter, and he says, the verse predicts the death of the Mashiach, and how he falls in the hands of the enemies, of his enemies, and he's placed near the wicked, and, and, that, and that person is Yeshu, all is what, is, what is, is part of the argument of Friar Paul. The Ramban asks, and it's similar to what we said yesterday about the, the um, Radak's refutation of Christians, the Ramban says, you want to say this section speaks about the Mashiach? It's not true. And like the Radak said, it only speaks about the people of Am Yisrael. We're the ones called Hashem's sons, And um, and we're called Yisrael, my servant Avdi, not 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 to any not to any false prophet, any or any false Messiah as Yashka Yashka was. Now the Ramban, the Ramban's refutation is so famous and worthwhile. Please don't listen to my inadequate summary uh, as definitive. You should look at it yourself, just to understand the the, uh, the greatness of Torah in in a in a in an eloquent compacted presentation. The Ramban, however, I, I am going to give you, though, my own view of the of the highlights, the bullet points of the Ramban's arguments. First, he said, you want to bring a proof from Agarita. There are no proofs from Agarita. Agarita is meant to teach us deep Jewish, Jewish ideas, philosophy, uh, but it's not proof text. Chazal were not interested in giving over a history. He says, even if they were, even if you want to make an argument that you can try to deduce proofs from history uh, through the Agarita, Paul's interpretation, Pablo Cushiani's interpretations are per se distortions. They're wrong even on the level of a Gadata. Chazal would not hint that Yeshu, who they called Yeshu in Chazal, um, was Mashiach, while at the same time oppose him as Mashiach. <coughs> Clearly, Chazal and the, the, the few passages that refer to him. Um, as such, we're, we're clearly we're, 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 we're uh, taking the assumption that he was a massive Russia. he was a sorcerer, he was a Macy somebody who incited to idolatry uh, he says I'm quoting the Rambani." Yeshu lived during, not the Talmudic time, but actually the second temple period, he was born he was killed before the Macy was destroyed Chazal, people like Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Yuna, Nossi Rabbi Ashi at the very end, they lived many years later and now, if Ramban concludes, if they believed that Yeshu was Mashiach and that his religion were true, how did they remain true to their Jewish faith? And we know for sure, in fact, it's replete in the entire Talmud that that's exactly how they held they were not Christian in the least. It, he concludes, if these sages believed in Yeshu, how did they not do it like Friar Paul, who seems to understand their teachings better than they do themselves? Ooh, the is so good. Uh, don't don't ever get into a debate with the likes of the Ramban. Yeah, Barak. debate we'll with one thing. No, but go ahead, Barak. <laughs> what was? But uh, was the Gemara not sansara at this point? Uh, this is just around the time that no, the curse so is actually. exactly. So we have those passages of the Talmud that we've mentioned here so before. he quotes them, he's actually quoting. Yeah, him. yeah, yeah. He can oh, quote it wow. for sure. Yeah, it's powerful, powerful material we're, we're dealing with here. Um, he says, he, he, elsewhere, Raman points out, Yeshu, we call him we call Yiddish Yashka, Raman didn't speak Yiddish at the time, uh, comes as the Prince of Peace. And then the Raman illustrates the deep irony in that statement. He's the Prince of Peace. Do you know that no religion in the name of the Prince of Priests or any other, any other prince or any, anybody else in the world has spawned as many wars as the Church? He says, he Yashka says, defended the poor, and yet nobody has exploited the masses and the poor more than the church. Which, by the way, he was really, this was an Achilles heel. Achilles heel meaning a very, a sore point, a, a tender point, sensitive issue with the church. You're going to bring this out. The Christians in the audience are standing there thinking, yeah, they are really corrupt because of these indulgences that made the church uh, uh, preternaturally uh, wealthy and and even more corrupt, and everybody knew this to be the case, and it's the emperor's new clothes where the Roman is stating the facts that everybody knows to be true, but nobody nobody has the bravery to stand up and and, and say them, That, that the church is totally corrupt and warmongering. He says, the proof of the Torah's truth is that there are still Jews in the world today. We should not be here. And the proof of Christianity's falsehood is that there are Christians in the world. Um, I'll go think about it. I'm not going to elaborate on each of these things. But in other words, the fact that there are Christians in the world is no proof of anything. You've forcibly converted them. Of course they exist. That's nothing. The fact that Jews exist, despite against all the odds... That in itself is, 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 is a proof that, uh, that it must be in us, our, our, our system. Um, he says the prophets promised redemption, universal peace. They promised justice. They said none of these have been fulfilled. Nothing has come out here, Ramban points out. He says to the contrary, and you claim the Messiah has come and, and redeemed the world. Quite the contrary. Since the appearance of Yeshu, the world has been filled with violence and injustice. And among all groups, the Christians are the most unjust and violent. If their way were correct, he asks, why doesn't everybody flock to them naturally? Isn't that what should happen when Mashiach comes? People will hear the MS and say, yeah, right. It's one of the reasons why I, I mean, I'm taking a side Yeah, My feeling in, what, in so-called Kiru, and even just as an educator, is that I don't think we have to come on too strong. I don't think you have to do too many fireworks, fancy uh, displays or anything. Just teach Torah. Torah Evans. evidence. sells itself. You don't have to be too aggressive. Guy's not interested. It's usually a Zetzar. You're not going to do much about that anyway. It doesn't matter how, how charismatic the teacher is, how, how uh, impressive the presentation is. Guy's going to you know, do what he wants to do in the, in the end of days anyway. Uh, just present the Torah. But the Christians are the opposite. They're so insecure. They must convert you as a, as, as a way of self-validation. Why does everybody flock to you? He concludes his whole presentation at the end of on, 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 on July twenty fourth, twelve sixty three. He says that the prophets understand the Mashiach is a human figure. He's a person of flesh and blood. He doesn't have divine attributes as you as you give divine attributes to Yashka. And he says, and I'm going to quote him because it's just so eminently quotable. It seems strange. That the Borei Olim, the creator of the universe, resorted to the womb of a certain Jewish lady where he grew into human form for nine months, would be born as an infant, would be later betrayed into the hands of his enemies who then executed him and then afterwards he came back to life, he returned to his original place. And then would somehow, at some ambiguous future date, be resurrected and a second coming? He says, the mind of a Jew, frankly, Ramban says any person, simply cannot tolerate these assertions. If you have listened all of your life to the priests who filled your brain and the marrow of your bones with these doctrines, then I understand it's settled into you because you've become accustomed. The habit has convinced you that this thing is somehow true. I would argue though, Ramban finishes, that if you were hearing these ideas for the first time now, as grown adults, you would never have accepted them. Now, the Ramban, even earlier than this, had been so effective. Had been, it, it was the kind of an argument that people there said, Friar Paul had nothing to say in response. There was a still silence in the room. That people never expected such stirring words and such audacious words that were many of which irrefutable at one point the jews of Barcelona, in fear re- reasonable fear of the dominican wrath and vengeance they beg him to stop but he said no i'm going to set the record straight once and for all the king also sees that it's not going very far and he demands closure uh, the king is in a, is in a, is in a difficult position. How, how are you supposed to end this thing that where the Ramban so clearly is victorious? But the only predetermined end to any such debate had to be that the Dominicans or the Christians would always win. So his conclusion is first, he awards 30, 300 golden coins to the Ramban, and he gives what I call um, the greatest of all backhanded compliments in all of history. He says, uh, let me quote him exactly, he says never before has he heard an unjust cause defended so nobly. But what's he gonna say? You're talking about the king of Dominican, Catholic uh, of Barcelona in the Middle Ages for him to say anything more even to say as much as this is risking his own neck. These are not, these are not times of freedom of speech. And so uh, that's how he concludes. He uh, the reward in the whole, the whole uh, immediate victory is what we call a pyrrhic victory, meaning you win the battle, you lose the war, um, there'd be huge recriminations for the Ramban and for the local Jews as follows. Immediately, the Dominicans claimed victory, because if you say it vehemently enough, it's true. I was thinking of uh, the previous president, George W. Bush, who, uh, who said emphatically, we don't torture, even though like the video footage was playing in the background of the torture. We don't torture. Therefore, it's true if you say it enough. So the, they said, we won. And so they published their version of the events, which are obvious lies and distortions. And the Ramban, since his whole purpose of entering the debate was to set the record straight and not have his words mangled, um, he, wrote, he set about to write his version, the true version of the events. And that's what we have. That's what I referred to before as the Sefer Hadikouach, the Book of the Disputation. And he publishes it. Now, it's true. The king promised freedom of speech and, and, and immunity to the, to the Ramban for the debate, but not for the book. And it was for the book, for the publication, that Christiani, Pablo Christiani, would find certain what he called blasphemous sections. Um, and he brings them to the court, and the court publicly tries to... Uh, the for blasphemy which was against our lord the savior yeshu which from their perspective was a was a potential capital crime and he was asked and he was grilled and he was asked to admit these words and he said of course I do I wrote them uh, he said the king promised me that I could the king is appeased but they're not because they said you, you're, you're allowed to say it but not publish it um so, finally, as a halfway compromise to satisfy the Dominicans, um, they work out a compromise punishment that the Ramban is sentenced to exile for two years, and his pamphlet would be burned. And they burned the Sefer of but Baruch Hashem, we're, we're resourceful types that we choose. We still have copies of it. Uh, and that's what, I, that's what I've been recommending you uh, to read. The... Um, the two-year exile is turned into a life of exile and the Ramban gets away fearing reasonably for his life the Dominicans actually find uh, think that the, the, the sentence is too lenient they, they appeal to Pope Clement the uh, and indeed the uh, the two two years turns into a permanent exile later on the king is um, is this is when the, the king appoints a censor to remove all those passages from the Talmud that the Ramban quotes that are deemed to be offensive uh, from the Talmud and also from the Jewish Siddur including this is the first time in history that we find in Aleinu exactly Shehemis Palim lehevel varik they dive into emptiness gods of emptiness is a direct reference to uh Yoshka and they remove it how do we know hevel varik is a reference to Yoshka because in gematria hevel varik It comes out to the number 316, which is the same gematria as the word Yeshu. They bow down down to Hebelverik emptiness, which is synonymous with Yeshu. And they they learn all these secrets, and they get rid of it. And that's why in your siddur, you notice that we have that part in parentheses. Parentheses only indicated that they were taken out of the manuscript and then reinserted later on. And so you should should, uh, say that line, proud and tall. When, 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 you're, when you're reciting it, that's part of the original tefillah that we date back to Yoshua ben Nun. And I mentioned this by Yoshua ben Nun that he knew this in anticipation. How does he have this gematria? Whereas Kabbalah, will Torah pre- predates time. There is no time in the Torah. Uh, in addition to the Ramban Sefer Vikuach, there'd be an anonymous Latin report from the Dominican side, stating their version of the events, as we said. Um, right on any level even if they claim victory we claim victory ourselves this would be the only time the jews would in any way win um they would come to dread all future debates Um, no matter what you did even if you made a good show of it they'd always fall with inevitable pogroms the ramban himself never returns he leaves most of his family behind he's a refugee he's an old man takes him four years but 1267, he finally reaches Akko. And who okay. does he find who's present in Akko at the time? We painted the scene yesterday. The yes, the Bali Tosimus, the original group that came under Rav Shem And we saw just a few years earlier in 1263, Rabbein Yerfiel of Paris <laughs> set up his Midrash de Paris in Akko. Uh, and the Ramban goes to Obakom uh, Tyre. To, to the place of Torah, which was Akko in those days, was was a central place for Jews. He uh, immediately, after, after reaching Akko, travels. And he we have a diary of his journey in Eretz Israel. And let's say you happen to be a tour guide, you might find such uh, reading such things to be invaluable. Um, it's technical. and has a, a, let's say, unlike the other Ramban's writing, there's a dryness of fact as he describes in detail what he encounters. There's not much in Eretz Israel. What there is, of course, is, is, is immensely uh, inspiring to the Ramban. He goes to Chevron. Uh, he writes about his visit. He, in Hevron, he, um and he goes to Yerushalayim almost, almost immediately. When he gets to Yerushalayim, he writes, he can't find a minion of Jews. And uh, he finds two dyers, D-Y-E, dying clothes, which was a Jewish profession back in the day. Um, but he's aware that there are Jews, a pretty established community up in Shechem, up in what they call today Nablus. This is the Biblical area of Shechem. And he said, and he calls those Jews, he says, I'd like you to come and uproot yourselves, at least a group of you, and move to Yerushalayim. And if you're the Ramban, you tell people to do that, and they do. Once upon a time when rabbis spoke, and they say jump, you asked how high, and they come and they resettle, and they come back to Yerushalayim. And to, our, to the best of our knowledge, from 1267, when the Ramban comes to Yerushalayim until the modern day, there's been a million of Jews in Yerushalayim ever since. He spends, it's, he's there through the summer, and he's there, his first Rosh Hashanah is in Yerushalayim, and we actually know what his, uh, his, his speech was in Shul. When he gave his drasha. On Yushlaim, they found an abandoned house with a Sefer Torah, and that there is where they make the, uh, the their, their shul. Maybe, for all we know, it's the same place called the Ramban shul. Today, we just have no way of proving that. Um, what is this drush about? He says you're in Eretz Yisrael. Can you imagine the Ramban coming to Eretz Yisrael? For me, it, it, it I get a chill because the Ramban himself is one of the eloquent spokespeople of history for the greatness of Eretz Yisrael. For example, even though the Rambam doesn't explicitly count it in his Tariyek mitzvahs, it's the Ramban, in his own enumeration of the mitzvahs, who counts two separate mitzvahs. Uh, He says says, there's a mitzvah of Kibush Haaretz, first you have to conquer the land, and then there's a separate mitzvah of Yishuv Haaretz, you have to dwell in the land. And now the Ramban is here on Yom Adin, finally able to be here. And so he talks about Eretz Yisrael, and he says, you have to be so, so careful. Those here have to be more righteous than any other Jew in the world. We are the essence of Qali Israel. They are the, um, they are, you are servants in the Heichal HaMelech, nothing less, in the, in the palace of the king. And, um, and I have this metaphor in my mind from Rabbi Yosef Kaplan, whose, whose brother teaches here, Rabbi David Kaplan's brother. He says, you know, sometimes you can get away in life with wearing an old wrinkled shirt. But in Eretz Israel, it's all freshly pressed from the cleaners. Nothing, nothing less than the best in the palace of the king. And whereas maybe you could have, you could have settled with being mediocre religiously, he said. The rabbi says that's not going to work here in Eretz Israel, Everything is magnified. A mitzvah counts a thousandfold. Conversely, a does too. So we don't no messing around in Eretz Kodish. He spoke to uh, the holy Jews in Yerushalayim in 1267. Um, when there was a, a, clearly a community established in Yushalayim, for reasons we, we don't know, Ramban will move up to Ako, where he spends the rest of his life. It's possible, one guess is that maybe Rabbeinu Yechiel, the leader of the Bali Tosfos, had died and they called to him, they needed a leader, and since that was a, a greater Ma'akov Torah and Ramban was the Gadol Hador, they needed him. And sometimes in a place where there's no person, you have to be that person, so it goes back to Akko, maybe that's why he, he goes there. Uh, what we do know is, um, talk about productive old age, um, it's, while in Akko, for the rest of his life, just a few more years, um, he writes his famous Igeris, uh, pass me that Sidur, please. It's probably a lot of Sidurim, but we have it, uh, right? So here you go. Igeret Haramban, that opens up many, we have it there in the, in the, in the, in the, in the article, too? Okay, I have it in most Sidurim, you have it, The Igeris Ramban is written in this later phase. Uh, If you haven't gone through it, it's how a lot of Jews begin their day. Every day they read through the Igeris. It's pretty short. Uh, He wrote it literally as a letter. That's what the word Igeris means. It's a letter to his son about how to lead a life of of substance and consequence. And keep your your priorities straight. straight. He completes his Perusha Torah. One, as I mentioned yesterday, his Perusha al-Tayra is, um, is one of the four things that Revolbi requires from any yeshiva student student to master before leaving yeshiva. So, you know, take notes. Right? Unless you're having Shana base, then you're fine. But sometime in these years that uh, you, you have to learn the, 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 the Chumash with Ramban's commentary, which offers some of the major points of Amuna. We went through some of them yesterday. Um, his Perusha also incorporates a lot of Kabbalah and uh, this is a time in history still, even in the 1200s, just around this time, the Kabbalah is emerging as a major force. The Zohar is not yet published. It's going to happen very, very soon. And every time, and this is the point that Sfiq asked me about, every time he says something like al PMS, or according to the truth, um, that's code in Ramban's language as um, this is the Kabbalah. This is the Kabbalistic approach to the Torah meaning the deeper approach as we've talked about and we're going to talk about again what is Kabbalah exactly. Uh, The Ramban Ramban has has a heavy Kabbalistic influence. Um, There's even a theory, how Kabbalistic is he, that while he's in Eretz Yisrael during the last four years of his life, he dies in 1271, um, he somewhere happens upon an old manuscript, the Zohar, and sends it back to Catalonia where later on it's published by Rav Moshe de Leon. Some say Rav de Leon had discovered it himself. He was a traveling sofer and often encountered uh, manuscripts and went through them and was able to discover the Zohar. He lives between 1250 and th- 1305. So he is clearly much younger than the Ramban and uh, the publication is, uh, is dated after the Ramban's death. We don't know exactly where the Ramban is buried. The theories theories maybe in Akko, maybe in Haifa. Uh, there was a tradition for many years that the rambans kever was just across the way from where we are sitting right now uh in east jerusalem There's a place if you look at some of the old maps of this part of town you see actually a place uh north of kever shimon called the kever of the ramban uh that doesn't seem to have any uh anything to back it up I, as i always say i don't know that it's not any more than I know that it is any more than I know that it's not the whole thing is a question but I do do assert that it doesn't make any sense and my my, my strong suspicion is that it's one of those things that people listen, we come to Eretz Yisrael we expect to see our Gdoli and we know the Ramban died here so I want to be able to daft him by his kever crying out loud Right? And as you can understand the legitimate Lashem Shemaim uh, desire on the part of Jews to find the Ramban's grave, and if you know what? If you're not gonna show it to me, I'll make it up myself. Did the Arisal, um, not, not not a chance. No, no, no indication from the rezal that the Ramban is buried there. No, that, did he validate any of them? In your No, any of the any three that you gave. Uh, of water, None of the above. You didn't evaluate. Nope. It. We have no tradition from the rezal where Ramban is buried. Nope. There are uh, we're not at the Erezol yet, so we'll get to the Erizal, But if, if, since you ask it, I'll, I'll just mention briefly. Um, there's a later tradition that I simply don't understand. Rav Moshe Chagiz was a gadol in Yerushalayim about hundred years. I told you this after the um, after the Uriza, I don't know how he has such a tradition, but he brings a tradition of a few different and Nikim that he claims were identified with the Erizal, except that the Erezol through we have no indication that he and we have indication that he did not come through Yerushalayim at all in the last years of his life. Wait, which one were you talking about? I, we were talking about Shem al Sadiq, but there's several that he attributes. He says Shem al is among them, uh, but not just. Cholda and Chagai, and Malachi, and um, Davna Melech. Oh, we're talking right about Davna right? right? Yeah. But uh, I don't know. It doesn't seem to follow. It makes sense to me. And since there's no Nafkamina it doesn't matter, except that it comes up by me all the time, since I'm a tour guide, and this is one of my areas that I specialize in, I, I say, we just don't know, and it doesn't make sense. And that's Ezra as well, as you said? Uh, uh, if Malachi's Ezra, as, as seems to be indicated indeed, yeah, that would be Ezra. Uh, we're gonna round out today, we're gonna talk about the end of the um, Balitosfos. When we last left the Balitosfos, they were the Hasidi Ashkenaz, the great Kabbalists of Germany, not to be confused with Hasidim, not to be confused with the Kabbalists, the Hasidic Ashkenaz, uh, later Kabbalists, um, in their tradition, the receiver of this tradition um, is, is Ruk Yitzchak of Vienna, who wrote a classic work called the Or Zeruah. His dates are 1200 to 1270, so he's a younger contemporary of the Ramban who dies a year earlier. He was one of his among his rabbis was Rabbi Yehuda Hasid who wrote Sefer Hasidim that we talked about. Uh, He has a few interesting uh, qualities. He's the first rabbi that we know of, at least that's in historical record, who was paid to be a rabbi, the And it's actually he describes it as a sign of declining times. He doesn't think it's a good thing that rabbis have to be paid. Once upon a time. Uh, you didn't serve as, you know, a pulpit or a congregation or anything like that. You, you had some kind of form of pranosa, and then you were the right man for the job. You were the gun on the door. You were the person who happened to know the most tireless. You were the rabbi, but you didn't make money on it. Um, and these days, the, the, such hardships, they uh, actually paid him. So he could he would serve in the post and deliberately not take on another kind of pranosa because he was so needed. Um, you know, the model of the rabbi not getting paid, I just point out to you, is superior. You know, the rabbis who own their own shuls, they don't have a board of directors. They can decide, and more specifically, Torah can be the determinant for how the community, what the community does. Often where there's a board of directors, um, they're making the decisions, and they decide, and the rabbi has to defer to them, but their decisions are often not in the spirit of halacha, or sometimes they're against halacha, so it's not optimal. Um, the similar insight, you know, I mean, Derek's a little different since so many people don't pay a tuition, but in many of these yeshivas, this, is this kind of yeshiva where people come and study for a, a period of time where you pay tuition, it's also not an ideal dynamic. I mean, I, in what some of my former yeshivas, I remember some of the guys having this attitude of, you know, I say jump and the rush yeshiva asks how high, where the guys, you know, I paid my money, he better teach Torah the way I like to hear it. I don't want to be threatened and challenged by his Torah. They say, that's, come on. That's how we teach Torah. Torah is is is, uh, is objectively true, and needs to be held held over the student. The student doesn't hold himself over the Torah. The um Orzerua traveled a lot. He spends a lot of time in and around France and Germany. He certainly knew everybody great from this period. Um, later, he builds his shiva in Vienna. It's the first time we hear Vienna as v- Vienna and Austria as being a Jewish center. Um, his work, Rabbi Yitzchak's work, is it's a Masterpiece. It's a complete halachic code. It's the Ashkenazi equivalent of the Rambam's Mishnah Torah, which had come out a, a couple generations earlier. Uh, and what it is, effectively, is he takes the whole, this whole vast school of learning that we refer to as the Tosfos, which a, a, a piece of which we have in the Daf Gemara, but realize it's much more vast than just that and he's able to synthesize it and pare it down into a bottom-line halachic psaq. And a code, as we say, a code meaning, you know, when you look up what the halacha is. That's what the Or is. It's often referred to as the Or Zarua when you're in yeshiva circles, you'll know how to distinguish it. Um, his son, Rav Chaim, collected notes from his father's teachings later on and published the Ora or- Zerua HaKatan, ha- or, or just the Stop, Ora Zerua. So to distinguish the two works, the father's from the son's, the father's is called Ora Zerua uh, He has a couple of interesting fidushim in the Ora Zerua. He says... The word Akiva, the name Akiva is a Hebrew name, not Aramaic. Um, and in Darshaning Rabbi Akiva's life, he says it's hinted at in the last words of the Pasuk, Or Zerua Latzadik Uli Yishrei Simcha, the five words of that Pasuk spell Akiva, with the hay at the end. Right? A light, a, Or Zerua, it's a light that's been planted for the Tzadik, and to the uh, straight of heart, it will be joy. Um, the Urzuruah cites a tradition in the Bali Tosfos that Rabbeinu Tam, famously wealthy, would learn with a bag of gold coins on his desk. And Rabbeinu Tam said, I put these gold coins here because Chazal have a tradition that when you have wealth, when you have material wealth, you have simcha. And with simcha, you can learn Torah more effectively. Uh, the Orzurua also was well off, but he said he tried the gold bag trick, never worked for him. Worked for a His primary student was Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Meir ben Baruch, the Maharam of Rutenberg. Rabbi Meir of w- Rutenberg, one of the um, one of the one of the core figures of history. He, Rabbi, Rabbi Meir was born in Worms. His dates are twelve fifteen to twelve ninety three. He was a student of the Orzur for eight years. I mentioned this yesterday. The Maharam, Rabbi Meir. Have you heard of Rabbi Meir? Uh, okay. You should know his name. Uh, he's, he's a significant name. I'll tell you why I asked the question why you might not have heard of him. is We don't really have, we, we don't really have his books. His fame is more of his stature and his teachings that will be transmitted elsewhere. But he's a core, um, really a turning point of a figure. He was there in 1242 witnessing the book burning in Paris. He actually was the one to compose the kina that we recite on Tisha B'Av about the event. It's called Sha'ali Shufa Ba'esh. Ask about that which is burned in fire. Remember, remember we said yesterday that that was considered its own korban, its own devastation uh, for that generation. Some call Rabbi Merah the last of the Bali Tosfos. Others say that that was his student, the Rosh, Rab- Rabbeinu Asher. He did write tshuvas. We don't have a, an organized, safer, like his Rebis or Zeruah, but he did write a lot of tshuvas, and those we do have, there are about 1,500 of them. Um, and if you study them, one thing that people who are expert in Reb Meir's notice is um, they're very different in style, and people sometimes wonder where they're all written by the same person. And the answer that, Reb Meir answers this himself, he said he, they were written by different um, students. And the students sometimes wrote it in different styles, but they all came <laughs> from the Rebbe, the, the Torah. They reflected where Rebbe Mir's um, Torah. Listen to the times. Listen to the issues that faced Klal Yisrael in this difficult period of history, in these dark Middle Ages. Um, in one shaila he's asked, um, he's asked about dying al Kiddush Hashem, and he says. If a person is confronted, and these are real common situations back in these days, if, one's con- if one is confronted with Kiddush Hashem and you resolve that you're going to die al-Kiddush Hashem, then if you wind up dying, you will indeed feel no pain, and it doesn't matter how they kill you. Once you accept in your heart that you're going to die al-Kiddush Hashem, everything will follow, like Rabbi Akiva's death. In another shaila. Um, there's a question that's at This is so beautiful, so poignant. He asked, the question, the question is asked, should the Jews cooperate with the new decree? See, the Goim had made a terrible decree now um, that the Jews all had to wear stars on their garments to indicate that they're Jews. Not clear if it's a, a Magin David, just a star of sorts. In fact, very likely not a Magin David, which we only associate with Judaism sometime later. Um, and the Jews are uh, humiliated to have to wear such a special garment. Do they have to wear these in, in, conforming, in conforming to the Zerub? So here's, here's how Rabbi Meir answers the Shaila. He says, make sure when you sew the star on your garment that you put extra thread. So Chas they don't fall out on Shabbos. He said with a wink and a smile. What's he doing? He said, take your badge of shame, what they're trying to throw on you as a badge of shame, and turn it into a badge of honor and pride. When you say, yeah, I wear my badge, and I'm going to make sure I'm going to keep Shabbos better by sewing it on extra tight. That's what we're supposed to do. I celebrate a Torah that they're trying to use to, uh, to, 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 to debase us with. Uh, we we, 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 we uh, wear proudly. In another tshuva, um, a man Asks the following, child, what do you answer in this case? How do you answer this case? A man wants to know, can I make tshuva? Um, yes. The man writes, I killed my wife and all four of my sons because we were threatened to convert to Christianity. And I didn't want to prevent, I, I, I wanted to prevent, I didn't want to convert. I also tried to kill myself, but I survived. This guy, are you, we already talked about this. Guy. We did talk about this? No, We're talking no. variations. I didn't and ask specifically about Shaila. Yeah. Okay. Fine. So this is this is Shaila. Can he make tshuva? So the Maharam in, in his answer, he cites our Gemara and Gitin, right? That there's a hefeder dial kiddush Hashem. Remember Rav Moshe of the four captives? His wife, in order not to fall prey to the pirates, throws herself overboard. There's clearly precedent for such behavior, but Rav Meir then says. It's not. It's clear that when applying to yourself, that you can take your own life. What about taking somebody else's you life? Didn't wait long enough. Right? What's that? You didn't wait long, long enough. You Who didn't? That, I mean, the case that you already told us. I don't. Good. I didn't tell you this particular case because this is a Hiddish... The Hiddish, I don't remember discussing it this year. That this is. Can you kill your wife and and, and your sons? And the, on this point, Rabbi Meir is not so sure. He, he he expresses his his doubts about it one way or the other. He's not sure what to do. He says. Um, in the end, he concludes that many, many chachamim, especially during the period of the Crusades, did exactly this. And you remember the stories that we told about the Jews in York and England and elsewhere. Um, and he concludes, no, you don't have to make jubah. You act at L'shem Shemaim, and Akadosh Baruch Hu will see your, your sincerity in your heart. In 1286, near the end of his life, the emperor Rudolf I declares all the Jews are his personal property, something that they do. One way, one way to get out of a difficult financial situation, you just simply declare that you own everything in the Jews' own. Um, and he forbids them to leave Germany, because they're going to quickly, after the decree, they're going to try to run away with their wealth, and they're, they're stuck. And it's, it's, it's a new level of persecution, and he specifically has Gedolim in mind that he's targeting, and the Maharam, Rabbi Meir and his family, um, quietly leave for Eretz Israel. It's a time still of the the Crusades at the end of the Crusader period. Uh, The Mamluks have now risen in Eretz Yisrael as we talked about yesterday, but if you've got to leave Germany, the place to go is Eretz Yisrael. And they're on their way out. They travel through the town of Lombardy, and as they reach Lombardy, he's recognized because he's an international figure and and, and one of the people smelling that he can make a profit is Moser, gives over Rebimer to the authorities and they capture him. Yeah, he's in trouble. moser, by the way, the status of a moser potentially, you have to know how, how to do this properly in the halacha, but moser potentially is somebody that you could kill. Yeah. He's worse than a Rodith on a certain level. Um, and the king of Austria k- takes him and holds him in a castle in Alsace-Lorraine for a, a, an exorbitantly high ransom, clearly something that the Jews would have great <laughs> difficulty raising. And the Maharam paskins that it's also for the Jews to ransom him. You cannot free me, and um, he's imprisoned there for seven years. His last seven years. there's a maximum that you allow allowed ransom. That's the issue at hand. This is a very famous episode, always cited in discussions of pidyon shvuyim. Can we redeem captives? Can we not redeem captives? Sadly, with the, um, when the when Shalit was redeemed finally a few years ago, um, it was not a halachic discussion. The government just randomly figured out what they would do on their own, um, expecting that maybe you know, they would be successful, have some siyat of the um But th- this, this would be a discussion as follows. First of all, while he's in the castle in prison, um, students are permitted to visit, and many do visit, including the Rush, who cites many of the halachas. The Rush is one of the great works of Ashkenazi halacha, and he often cites, when I visited my Rebbe in prison, he taught me as follows, as the source of the halacha. The Rush disagreed with his Rebbe. The the Rebbe Mer's position was, you cannot redeem me because there's no end. You'll pay the ransom money, thereby impoverish the community. They'll kidnap me all over again to get more money. And under those circumstances, there's nothing to be gained. The Rush disagrees, and he starts to raise a fund, he cites a Mishnah in Gittin. the Mishnah says, Ein podin yeter This is what you're referring to. Yeser al- mayhem. You can't redeem them more than their value, and there's an objective value you can work out for people. Why? If you do, you've got this whole problem. It's Rabbi Mir's principle. The Rush says, No, the Mishnah doesn't apply to Gunnel the door who's needed by the people. We need them, we got to redeem them at whatever the price is we're going to pay. And he actually was in the process of raising the sum when the Maharam dies in prison in 1293 and uh, they didn't pay the ransom. And um, cruelly, the king keeps, the, keeps Rabbi Meir's body. Um, it takes 14 years until a wealthy Jew wound up paying off the ransom just to get the body from the, from the um, castle to, bury, to give a proper burial. Burial. Um, the Jew is able to arrange for this burial. He pays a huge sum of money. He does so um, only with the request that he be buried next to Rabbi Meir, which is reasonable enough, and they grant him that. And actually today, you can go to the cemetery in Worms, no pun intended, uh, and you can find both graves there, Rabbi Meir and this and the donor who uh, who redeemed the body. It's among the oldest cemeteries in Europe. Immediately thereafter, we'll, meet, we'll, we'll learn about the rush's life, not today, but the rush, Rebbeinu Asher, would flee Spain for his own life. Uh, the um, Rabbi Meir is most Nefesh for Klal Yisrael, and ultimately, his own personal example bears fruit. Um, Gedoli Torah would rarely be taken hostage again. I Meaning the goyim see that it's not necessarily so productive. You hold the, gu- the you know you hold the gadol in, in the castle for seven years. You got to feed him and you make keep him alive so you can hold out for the ransom. And the ransom never came. So um, he actually was arguably saved a lot of people, uh, a lot of a lot of uh, personal tragedy and, and, and a lot of money and, and, and the rest. It's not it's not entirely true that he saved everybody. We'll have examples of gadolim taken hostage in the modern day. The um, Pachad Yitzchak. Yitzchak Hutner would be um, famously on a a hijacked airline, but I'll tell that story when we get to the modern era. Um, Other than his chuvas, we have no works, no major work from him. Uh, His teachings would be codified finally in the Rush's commentary. Um, He had another major student who I'm going to mention in passing very briefly. Do we have a Gemara here? This one I have to show you a picture for go. Okay. Uh, his picture, he comes in the back of the Gemara. It's the Mordechai. And here's his picture, perfect likeness. Um, no, no. It's after the Dabbe Shah And these newfangled Gemaras, I can't find anything that I'm looking for. Um, uh, uh, oh, oh, I see why. This is an abbreviated version. Okay, so I grabbed the wrong Gemara. Anyway, the Mordechai is in the very back, and I'm not going to take more time for it. How tell told this abbreviated version? Because it doesn't have all, it doesn't, it's not complete, it doesn't have the Mordechai. I mean, it should be near the back, it's right before the pages of the Tusefta. Would it say complete? Well, I can tell, look, it's a very thin Sanhedrin, so clearly. Now, all of the Sanhedrin yeah, is right. really thin. Yeah, right, very thin, correct. Anyway, the, the uh, Rav Mordechai ben Hillel HaKohen is um, another of the main disciples of the Maharam in Germany. His paper is referred to as the Mordechai, and... Um, how important is it? It's one of the five secondary pillars. What do I mean? When the mechaber can't determine in the Beit Yosef, he can't determine the halacha based on who are the big, the three major pillars we've talked about. Rashi, the Rif, and the Rosh. No. I mean, sorry, Rambam, the Rif, and the Rosh. Right. The, in, in, in chronological order, the Rif, the Rambam, and the Rosh. We've said. But sometimes, let's say it's one, one doesn't vote and it's a tie one-to-one, or there are other standoffs in halacha, maybe none of them have a vote, so then there's a secondary tier of gedolim, and they include the Mordechai, the Ramban, the Rashba, the Ran, and the Smag. Of these, we've met the Smag and the Mordechai and the Ramban, and we're about to meet the Rashba, and the Ran will come soon. The, um, he's, the Mordechai is Rosh Hashiva in Nuremberg, Germany, uh, for seven years, turns out his last seven years, in 1298, that generation's equivalent of the Shoah, and sadly there'll be many, many such equivalents of the Shoah, this time called the Rindfleisch Massacres, take place, and I, I just feel like I, 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 you, I know the end of the story, and I get choked up whenever I, um, because... It's just, you think of these gedolim and in the case of Mordechai he and his wife Zolda and their five children are all murdered so he has no, he has no descendants um, together with 5,000 other Jews from, over, from 146 communities and that was just the way it was back in the day and his legacy is his great, is his great Torah that he leaves to us and is, is learned everyday in yeshivas and kolos around the world um, <coughs> meanwhile off Nerech Yisrael Biberz defeats the Mongols in In en in 1260. Biberz was the slave of the Salah family dynasty, or the Ayyubids. Their base is in Cairo, and they have these slaves called the Mamaluks, and they they train them among other things as warriors. Biberz is the most famous of the warriors. Biberz is the one who who elaborates the largest castle in the Middle East that that represents the entire top of the mountain of Tzfas till today. Uh, He has many other... uh, Many other uh, buildings and, and legacies around Eretz Israel. Um, the Mamluks then take over as the new regional power in most of Eretz Israel. There are going to be still crusaders based in Akko on the northern coast of Eretz Israel for the next couple of decades until 1292. But the Mamluks will take over they're a whole story. And I, I elaborate on them elsewhere, but since we're telling Jewish history, they're not that important. They're not nice to the Jews. Among other things, um, one of the things that Bibers does is from that point in history, um, Hebron is mostly off-limits, as you call Yisrael, for about 700 years. No, not Hebron. Hebron is still is a major Jewish center um, within Hebron they came of the patriarchs and matriarchs, Jews can't have access to the building. It's under Bibers that they build up the top level of the building and make all their mistakes up there de- de- deciding who's buried where, even though none of those those are all cenotaphs and, and fancy mamalu work, but not not, uh, not anything long, lasting um, Bybers becomes the sultan Cairo over, over not just Eretz Israel but a whole large region around the Mediterranean. Um, they would rule most most of the time continuously until 1516 when they lose to the ottomans the to the turks yeah um the last of the mamaluks dies in the war of 1812. Wow. yeah yeah so they're around they're they're big i should just say i make a comment about the, about the um they were anti-corruption understanding that all the early muslim dynasties were corrupt so they were they were not nepotistic they said no uh, father-son rulers and so they they trained converts to be uh, the, the king for a finite period of time and of course their system which was meant to be anti-corruption was more corrupt than most that preceded, no figure. Uh, they built up most of modern Jerusalem as we have it today. A couple more figures for the day. Rav Aaron Alevi, referred to as the Ra'ah, is from Barcelona as well, after the Ramban is dates from 1230 to 1300. Uh, if you want to make, connect the dots, he's the great-great-grandson of the Baal Um He often worked together with the Rashva on Shuvahs. He has a commentary on the Rashi's Torah Subayis, called the Berica It deals with the topics of Kashus and Nida. Um, if this, these are all names and concepts for you that don't mean anything right now, you're all going to become diktamenechachamim and you're going to learn all these books. So here's a heads-up to you that you should know all these names. Plus, they say that, I mean, you probably get there, but he's that uh I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, getting there, right right, right now. Um, we're not sure, right? But um, we know that the Sefer Chinuch was written in the 13th century in Spain. And so uh, the best guess that anybody has is it's Revar and Alevi, correct, as, as Barak correctly brings in, um, right? The, what, have you learned the Chinuch? You must learn the Chinuch. If you want good, basic, Hashkafa, halacha. the Chinuch, based on the Rambam's um, say for mitzvot, takes the 613 Mitzvos and gives you all the necessary background in a, in a, in a simple, brief summary that's every bit as profound as it, as it is brief uh, and succinct. He um, captures so much, it's, 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 it becomes, it, his purpose is not to become, he, the author, which may or may not be own, um was just writing a book to explain Torah to his son, and he's a master educator. And he explains to all of the Jewish sons, as it turns out. Uh, it would be a book. You, you have to learn this book. Shev Chavrus is on the subject. Uh, when rev Gifter Gif, was in Eretz Yisrael for a very finite time, he gave a very famous Minchas Chinuch. Minchas Chinuch will be a commentary on the Sefer Chinuch, uh, Shir. He bases the Chinuch certainly on the Rambam, but also on the Rif and the Ramban. Um, I'll give you just one famous... Example as we round out the day in the sixteenth mitzvah uh, in Parsha's Bo, he teaches from the pasuk veetzim lotish You're not supposed to break a bone of the korban pesach, and he elaborates. He says, because why do they break a bone? Because ruffians, um, lower class people, when they eat, they eat so ravenously that they even break bones to suck the marrow from the bones in their in their in their um, flesh lust. And he says, not, not us. That, that's not the quality of Klal Yisrael. If you want to understand the ta'ame mitzvahs, the reasons behind each of the mitzvahs, he explains, that's not the way. And then he elaborates. He says, you know, all the mitzvahs are like that. You should keep all the mitzvahs. Those you understand, and even those you don't understand, because when you do it, they groom you to be a finer human being. He says, he says when you, you, you keep the mitzvahs, you learn the munah. It's like putting it under your pillow. You get it tacitly. You learn good midos, you learn proper hashtafa. It's all in the system. That's how the Torah is set up. He says, and here's the famous line, Ki achare ha-pu'ulos nimshochim After your action, the heart follows, which is such a major organizing principle of Judaism. Do the right thing. Yeah, you'll come around to understanding it too. Your midos will be good too. Your Imuna will be developed in the process. But meanwhile, just do the right thing. Come to Shafris. You understand why you're davening? Maybe, maybe not. Just come anyway. Do the right thing. You'll be amazed how it starts to fit together in ways you can't even articulate. That's what people always told me before I was from. They said, "Just do it." Judaism is experiential. You'll understand so much more. You'll read every book in the world. You'll never understand it. Ki after the actions, the hearts will follow. The heart, the heart will follow, and you'll understand in a way that uh, that, that you could never understand otherwise. So, teaches the Chinuch, who may very well be the Rev. Aaron Levy. Um, who is a colleague and a commentator, students also of, of the Rashba, who we'll talk about tomorrow. As we round out, we're already rounding out and learning some of the, uh, um, some of the later uh, famous Rishonim. And uh, we're going through this period fairly rapidly, but okay, we'll continue tomorrow.